0: Hey everybody, welcome again to F This Movie, the official podcast of FThisMovie.com, movie love for movie lovers. My name is Patrick Bromley, and I'm super excited for this week's show, because we're talking about Devil in a Blue Dress from 1995, and I'm joined for this discussion by the privatest I I know, J.B.
1: Patrick, if you didn't want him dead, why did you leave him with me? <laughs> Talk about... That a- is my wife's... That is my wife's favorite line in the movie. (laughs) Talk about a... I mean,
0: we'll get to Don Cheadle, but, like, talk about a, a, a kind of a breakout role where you're just like, oh, my God, who is that, you know?
1: And I looked it up, and he had been in TV and movies for 11 years. Yeah. Before devil in a blue dress and in when he's in devil in a blue dress he's only two years away from boogie night
0: yeah it's still another couple years before people start to really and now he's a a marvel superhero he's an avenger so dreams do come true everyone
1: the highest level of success you can (laughs) achieve
0: in modern hollywood that's when you peak um i'm war machine baby uh j bones today the day we are recording this you have launched a new column called Movies is
1: Good. Do you want to talk about it? Well, it's the same old stuff, but I will not be proofreading anything anymore. And instead of tippity typing, I'm dictating it. And ostensibly it's so that you can get inside my brain, which is a scary place (laughs) full of uh, mildew and horror. But, um, I just wanted to try something new, and I was really happy with the first one, so we'll see how it goes.
0: Yeah, the first one was on Bedazzled from 1967, which uh, that and my recent procurement of said film from Twilight Time R.I.P. inspired me and Erica to watch
1: Bedazzled last night, and we uh, enjoyed it a lot. Did you agree with uh, what I said about the black and white sequence? It's like, the whole film is excellent, but when they go to that... It's like they're channeling, I don't know, either their love of British TV or their love of A Hard Day's Night. It's it's like the film jumps up in some ways. Or maybe it's because that sequence features two songs that Dudley Moore wrote.
0: So I will admit to being a fan of the Harold Ramis-Brendan Fraser remake from the early 2000s, maybe 2000. Oh, sure. It's funny. Yeah, but watching this one last night, it occurred to me like, oh, people expecting this probably didn't like the remake because they are very
1: different movies. They're two very, very different things. Almost two very different schools of humor. Very much so. It's almost like you can say Bedazzled is um, emblematic of the sort of uh, Cambridge-Oxford university comedy circuit and that... uh, the American Bedazzled comes out of Second City.
0: Yeah, it's uh, it's a lot broader and sillier, if you can believe it. And for years, I was like, well, that, how come people don't like uh, Harold Ramis' Bedazzled more? And then I watched the original. And I was like, oh, this is probably why, because they wanted this and
1: they got that. The Harold Ramis one is really funny. I would suggest Bedazzled is after some things other than just making us laugh. Right. Yeah, that's fair. I'm glad both exist. Do you know why? Why? Because movies is good. <laughs>
0: so you just get to this write about the... whatever you want in movies is good. Haven't I
1: always yeah, just. Well, you know what about... I mean. Like
0: some some of the uh, columns have been, they've had more of a, a structure to them, like Cinema Bestius was okay, these are the 50 best movies, or The Overlook was these are, you know, movies that are underrated, like uh, the Harold Ramis Bedazzled,
1: uh, but this can just be anything. You have put your finger on it, because what I'm saying is, after 58 years on the planet, and have I mentioned I'm still alive, I've reached one conclusion. Movies is good. (laughs) Speaking of movies is good, have you seen anything good lately? Yes, as befitting... Uh, a very busy june exploitation month. I'm going to keep these short because I have so many things to mention. Oh, good. Okay. Uh, Kino Lorber, in conjunction with the 3D Film Archive, put out Taza, Son of Cochise, which is a film... <laughs> you can't I was just not... make up movies. <laughs> Actually, about nine years ago, I did. <laughs> I remember um, that. One of the columns I'm most proud of. You said, what movies have you never seen that you'd like to see? And I just made them up. Yeah. Because at that point, I was so full of hubris, I thought I had seen everything. Here's the point. Um, obviously, I've got a 3D setup, so I'm interested in anything Kino Lorber puts out that's in 3D. But, man, did this play dividends. First of all, it stars Rock Hudson in brownface as the title character. Oh boy. And it was directed by Douglas Sirk. Oh, wow. Who we do not normally associate with, <laughs> with brownface. Oh, sorry. Plus, it's in three D. And boy, you know Douglas Sirk is famous for these sort of soapy melodramas that look really luscious and scrumptious. And Taza, son of Cochise, is one of the greatest looking three D films I've ever seen. Wow! Because he knows he's got to satisfy both audiences, uh, audiences that want stuff thrown at them. And there's a lot of that. Hmm. But also, every scene has things carefully placed in the foreground and the background. So it looks like a Viewmaster slide. It's really, really great 3D. Plus, and this is a big plus, it's one of the few Hollywood westerns I've ever seen that really gives Native Americans a fair shake. Okay. That the theme of the film is that Cochise dies. And he has two sons, and the two sons represent where this Indian nation might go and under the, their respective leadership. The two sons are
0: Taza and Scott.
1: I don't remember off the top of my head the name of the other son, the violent, headstrong other son. But he's played by Rex Reason from, um, oh, give me a second, it's on to my tongue, this island earth. Before he chose Rex Reason as his movie name, so he's listed as some some other name, maybe his real name, but there he is under all this Native American makeup, and it presents uh, Indian characters who are noble and Indian characters who are wrongheaded and violent, and it presents white characters who are noble and white characters who are wrong-headed and violent. And I really appreciated the fact that Doug Douglas Cirque was not giving us the standard the only good engine is a dead engine nonsense. Right. It's really good. I would recommend it. All right. I did not expect that when you announced the title. And then um, Kit Parker Films, in conjunction with a whole bunch of other people, good Lord, put out Laurel and Hardy, The Definitive Restorations. Yes. And I want to give Heath Holland a shout-out because it was through him and his website Serial at Midnight that I realized that this was coming down the pike. In fact, he got his copy early, and he reviewed it. Um, Lauren Hardy films have been under this weird copyright limbo, where it's easier to get them in England, but then all those discs are region two, and it's, it's a big hassle. And actually, some of the commentaries on the new set sort of explain that problem. But what they did is they took a whole bunch of Lauren Hardy films and they did 4k restorations from the best elements they could find. And these are films I've been watching since I was 12. And this new set is unbelievable. Unbelievable. The music box, probably their most famous short because they won an Oscar. And a couple months ago, I got a chance to visit the steps where it was filmed This thing looks like it was filmed yesterday, only they chose black and white. Right. It's astounding. Um, So far, I've watched three. The Restoration of Battle of the Century, which is the famous film with the big pie fight, and the music box, and a film called Birthmarks, which was released in 1929 on, on Vitaphone, which was the system with the records. And then seven years later, they went back and sort of modernized the soundtrack and the set includes both versions because this is the height of obscurity and who <laughs> on earth is watching this besides me? But the people behind the set know what they're doing because on one of the commentary tracks, after about 10 minutes, the guy sort of pauses and says, now, if you're still listening to this, you're the type of person who would enjoy the following. And then he gets even more obscure. Hmm. And it's just crazy about film restoration and copyright. It's unbelievable. And I haven't even watched the features yet. I think there's 12 shorts and two features on the set. The two features being Sons of the Desert and Way Out West. They're two most uh, popular features. But it is a must-buy. It's unbelievable looking. Very cool. Last weekend, like every other American with Disney+, I watched Hamilton. Yeah. I know you did. I did. And I shouldn't be surprised, but I was very interested in hearing how your kids reacted. Yeah. And that made me really happy.
0: Rosie has been listening to it all week. She was listening
1: to it not 20 minutes ago. And um, the last time I spoke with her, uh, she shared with me that Not Throwing Away My Shot was her favorite song. hmm and then I was telling her that In the Room Where It Happens was my favorite song.
0: Yeah, what did you think of the uh, the Disney Plus version?
1: Well, you know, we saw it live. But in retrospect, um, where we were sitting was pretty far away. Yeah. And it was nice to be up close. And I also thought it was really smart for the stage director to direct the movie version, so to speak. And I was just reading in the New York Times how they managed to capture it, and um, I think I'm getting this right. They used a camera in the back of the set that was disguised, because they did film during actual performances. Right. One, of the, one of the last two performances with the original cast, and in the house they had ten separate cameras. I didn't realize it was one of the final performances they gave with that cast. Right. I mean, the the show kept going. Um, It was about two weeks after it won all the Tonys. Wow. So, um, I would argue, and, and I've seen it once live, and of course I've seen the Disney Plus version, that everyone in the Disney Plus version is at the top of their game. I mean, you're looking at a cast that has done it hundreds of times.
0: Yeah, I wasn't surprised. After we watched it, I went on the, Wikipedia page, because I knew it had won Tonys, but I didn't know exactly who won all the Tonys. Uh, And
1: Lin-Manuel Miranda commented that it is the best rehearsed movie cast in history. (laughs) That sounds about right, yeah. Well, what I didn't know is that the actor who plays uh, Lafayette, I'm getting the name wrong. Lafayette
0: uh, and Thomas Jefferson?
1: Lafayette and Thomas Jefferson is the lead in the new TV version of Snowpiercer.
0: Um I haven't watched Snowpiercer, but I know David Diggs from he was on Kimmy Schmidt for a while. He was in a movie maybe 2 years ago called Blind Spotting that you should
1: absolutely check out which, which I've read about, but I I did not recognize him in the episode of Snowpiercer that I watched and um uh, the cast is so uniformly excellent, it's sort of interesting to think about what they've done since because of course what we saw this weekend had been filmed four years ago. Right. Um this I, I, I think one of the positives was I read a lot of places in the wake of Hamilton on Disney Plus. Why isn't every Broadway show preserved this
0: way? Yeah. Yeah, it's nice that, you know, because it's not a cheap ticket. Um, It's not playing in every major city. There's a lot of people who can't go for any number of reasons who, you know, I'm sure really would like to see something like Hamilton or any other Broadway show. And uh, it's very, very cool that everybody gets the
1: opportunity to, you know. uh, And when Robert Iger brought up putting it on streaming for a number of reasons, the creative team, their first reaction was no, they wanted a theatrical release. I didn't realize that. And one of the reasons why Iger wanted to put it on Disney Plus is that with the quarantine and the the fact that it looked like movies and TV shows are going to be quarantined for a while, he wanted some new content for Disney Plus. Right. It's uh, certainly... Uh, a semi-altruistic gesture, maybe just because I'm still enjoying my free year of Disney Plus, but it's it's nice that it's being offered, as they used to say, in the theatrical exhibition game at popular prices.
0: Yeah, no, I mean they've done a couple of, you know, they put Onward on their streaming service. They released Frozen Two a little bit early. Um, they put uh, what's the one about the precocious kid. Um,
1: Oh, um, Artemis
0: Fowl. Thank you, Artemis Fowl, which, you know, could be a blessing or a curse. I don't really know. I haven't watched it. I didn't hear good things. Um, But they've been, you know, releasing stuff to their streaming service early or exclusively, you know, that was supposed to go theatrical. Uh, And I appreciate that kind of
1: response to the situation that we're all in right now, you know. And I was actually shocked. I will use the word shocked when I discovered that I get HBO Max for free. Because I subscribed to HBO on the cable machine, and um, HBO Max now has Scoob for free. Already? Holy cow. So, what about those thousands of frustrated parents who paid $20 for it? What was it, two weeks ago? Yeah. I felt bad for them, though not bad enough to watch Scoob yet.
0: <laughs> I still don't have HBO Max because it's not available on Roku. Um, I'm not even sure I will be getting HBO Max when it becomes available, but uh, is it the kind of thing where, like, when John Oliver is on on Sunday, then on Monday, is he on HBO Max?
1: Yes, but there's a twist. Okay. Do you subscribe to HBO?
0: Yes, but I could cancel my HBO subscription and replace it with HBO Max, if that
1: makes economic sense. Because what impressed me was... That in the spirit of Disney Plus, which is what we started talking about, HBO Max knows that you have to have a lot of programming. So there's a whole wing of HBO Max that's curated by the Criterion Collection. Yeah. There's a whole other wing with boatloads of Looney Tunes. Yeah. I'm looking through the menu, and my (laughs) wife actually went, my wife and I went back to watch the SNL routine about how much is on Netflix. (laughs) Mm hmm because there was a phrase i wanted to remember that i couldn't remember so we went back and there is so much programming on disney plus and on hbo max and on netflix that the singularity will be achieved
0: (laughs) i'm in the process of uh you know reshelving all of our physical media and yes we don't really need any streaming services. We have enough movies to watch here that we don't need any. So sometimes it's out of convenience. Sometimes it's because like, well, I want to see Hamilton. So we have to make sure we're subscribed to Disney plus, or I want to see onward when it comes out or whatever. So I end up subscribing to all these streaming services when we have so much stuff already. Why am I subscribing to all these? I don't know.
1: But as I was explaining to someone on the 4th of July, for me, it's a form of spite. Because if there's anything anywhere that I can't watch, I get mad. <laughs> so it was really hard for a really long time to see Bugsy Malone. Yeah, we watched it on
0: Criterion, I think. When Criterion was first launched, it was on there.
1: And and now it's on Amazon. Yeah. Because I thought, if the kids liked Hamilton, they might like this. And... Patrick will want to see it because uh, the, um, the the Phantom Paul of the Williams Paradise, wrote the music, himself, right? right. Uh, wrote all the music. Um, finally, um, I saw the Road to Wellville because Shout Select put that out, and that that had been kind of hard to see for a while. And I think I liked it even better this time than when it originally came out. And um, Kino Lorber, no, I take that back. Uh, Warner Archive. Put out the new restoration of Mystery of the Wax Museum. Mm -hmm. And like the Laurel and Hardy films, it's something to see. I mean, just the restoration demo where they show you before and after, the work they did on this thing is incredible. Um, It's the best looking two strip Technicolor restoration I've ever seen. But the reason I bring it up is because I bought this thing. I think it cost me 20 bucks. And then a week later, I discovered that Warner Archive is going to put out House of Wax in 3D again. I guess the original one went out of print or something. Okay. Warner Archive is releasing the Vincent Price House of Wax in 3D if you can do 3D at home. And the bonus feature on the House of Wax disc is the restoration of Mystery of the Wax Museum.
0: That's how the original DVD was. I have my original Snapcase House of Wax DVD, and the bonus on that is Mystery of the Wax Museum.
1: So my hope is, because you shouldn't have to buy everything twice the way I do, is that the bonus Mystery of the Wax Museum on the new House of Wax Disc will be the restoration of Mystery of the Wax Museum. Yeah, I would think so. It's just incredible to look at. Plus, it has Fay Ray. Yeah, I would think so. So you're going to end up with two copies of that movie, right? I'm going to wind up with Mystery of the Wax Museum on Mm Blu-ray, and then... A second copy of House of Wax, because I still have the original House of Wax in 3D, but (laughs) I can only hope that there's bonus features on Mystery of the Wax Museum that they won't port over. Yeah, I would think so. Uh, The commentary on uh, the restoration of Mystery of the Wax Museum is sort of amazing. Okay, wow.
0: I rarely listen to comment. I'm always amazed you listen to a lot of
1: commentaries. I rarely do anymore, and uh, I wish I could get back to it. Here's why I listen to commentaries, and now for a minute I will sound like um, Obi-Wan Kenobi. A lot of the movies I watch I've seen before. I know, hard to believe. Like all those universals. Right. So it makes it new and different to watch it with the commentary. That makes sense. Especially a movie where I could recite the dialogue along with the <laughs> with the actors. What have you seen lately? Uh, I watched. Speaking of
0: streaming services that I probably don't need on Hulu, I watched Shirley, the recently released biopic of author Shirley oh. Jackson, starring Elizabeth Moss. Um, she's amazing in everything. You know, she was great earlier this year in The Invisible Man. She gives another great yeah. performance in Shirley. I'm mixed on the movie itself um and and some of that just has to do with my own personal bias about movies where people seem to be maybe going a little crazy or already or are already crazy when the movie starts. Um, I find that hard to watch sometimes for lots of
1: reasons and this does is the movie does the movie talk a lot about her writing? not a lot because I know this is going to surprise you because she was a very famous writer. That's the part I'm most interested in.
0: Yeah. And there's some of that, but it's also about this other couple that comes to live with her and her husband. It's about her relationship with her husband and him sort of stepping out on her. There's a, there's a lot of other stuff going on that is, it's not really a movie about writing the way that you would maybe
1: hope that it would be. Um, okay. And that's legitimate. I mean, be my guest, but yeah, that's the, that's the part about her that I'm most interested in because she wrote two of the, the greatest, well, it's, it's a, uh, it's diminishing, but she wrote two of the greatest horror tales ever.
0: Yeah. It's worth watching just, uh, you know, as a fan of Elizabeth Moss, cause she's always great. Um, Erica and I are stuck in quarantine. Like everybody else, and there can be no other excuse for turning on Netflix and watching Eurovision Song Contest, the story which I've read of the Fire Saga. But I, but I haven't seen it. You're fine. It's over two hours, which is kind of inexcusable <laughs> given what the movie is. Um, it's just, it's like barely a movie. Like, it's pleasant in that everyone in the movie is kind of nice and well-meaning and there are no real villains, even Dan Stevens, who's playing this sort of, uh, over the top Russian singer, uh, with very gaudy tastes. Um, he's funny. Uh, and he's sort of pegged as the antagonist early on, but he's not really, he's also like kind of a decent guy. And we learn things about him that, explain who he is and Rachel McAdams, you know, I have said for a long time has an ability to make any material work. Um, so you could put her in something really bad and she's going to at least sell her stuff. And she absolutely does. But the movie is what I've read the
1: most that she's really good in it.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's the movie's just kind of okay. You know, it's Will Ferrell kind of doing another man child. Um, it's nowhere near the league of some of his early, you know, it's no Anchorman, it's no Step Brothers. I, do, I don't even think it's as good as something like Talladega Nights, which I haven't seen in a long time, but I remember being kind of funny. As uh, they say in Stardust Memories, I like your early, funnier <laughs> <laughs> Uh Yeah, I mean, it was like... As Erica was saying, like for quarantine, this was perfect, you know, because it it doesn't challenge us and it's reasonably pleasant and there's no other reason we would have watched it. So it gets the job done, but it's a hard, it's a hard movie to recommend. Here's the call of all of our listeners.
1: We're in quarantine. Lower the bar.
0: (laughs) That's absolutely, absolutely the case. Um we watched a Joan Micklin Silver movie called Between the Lines.
1: Yes, because uh, Erica had put out the word about it, and I guess you rented it.
0: Yes, before you told us that you have it on Blu-ray.
1: Right. And and what did the two of you think of that?
0: We both liked it a lot. Um, it's so good. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's just a hangout movie, basically. It's uh, got a pretty terrific... Cast Jeff Goldblum tends to steal every scene that he's in.
1: Um, yeah. what, what's with Doug Kenny showing up at the end? Yes, he's the one that Jeff Goldblum is talking to in the bar. Right. I guess he just knew the actors and the filmmakers, and he wandered by one day. Yeah, I, I was. And uh, a lot of the songs are by Southside Johnny, which is another plus. Um,
0: It ended and Erica was like, oh, that's kind of like a precursor to something like St. Elmo's Fire, which sounds like a rip on the movie. And it's not supposed (laughs) to be because St. Elmo's Fire, say what you will, is not a great movie. Uh, This was a lot better, but it's that same kind of like, hey, we're all friends in this age group um, bonded together in this case over the fact that they all work for this independent newspaper. And it's sort of about their romantic comings and goings and their professional comings and goings and uh yeah very very
1: enjoyable i like to think it's about the cast of the big chill 10 years before the big chill that's a good way of putting it yeah um before they all went their separate way right well, see, you can tell
0: where our frames of reference are. We're children of the 80s because we say Sally St. almost Fire. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, I'm really glad you saw it, though. It's really, really good. I had never even heard of it until she put it on my radar. I think Michael Phillips uh, of the Chicago Tribune had maybe tweeted something about it. Um, uh, next, you guys should check
1: out Chili Scenes of the Winter. Which uh, we have. AKA so. Head Over Heels. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's uh, – A lot of the same vibe. Yeah.
0: And John Hurd doing good early work. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then last, um, some of you listening may know that I occasionally moonlight on another podcast for Daily Dead called Corpse Club. And this month we're devoting, uh, we're doing the class of 1980 series. So it's, you know, spotlighting all the films that came out in 1980. And my friend Heather Wixon and I are doing a podcast podcast, on Brian De Palma's Dress to Kill. So I rewatched Dress to Kill, which uh, I like more every single time I see it. It's out on Blu-ray from Criterion. And uh, it's really, it's the kind of De Palma movie that I love. You know, I I like Carrie. I like The Untouchables. um, But when he gets into that kind of salacious thriller mode, uh, that's my favorite De Palma movie. so it's dress- I call
1: those Brian De Palma, the storyboard years. <laughs> it's just, I mean, that
0: whole sequence of Angie Dickinson in the museum is so incredible. Yeah. Uh, and I, I wrote a piece once, and I will stand by this, that Dress to Kill is sort of the definitive American take on the giallo uh, for a whole lot of reasons that I outline in the article but as i was watching it i was like yeah i stand by that sentiment that this is really an american giallo um
1: done a year or two ago well uh, under the ages of f this movie when i really started <laughs> watching giallos in earnest i was a little surprised by how many filmmakers were very influenced by that genre yeah and i didn't remember reading any interviews where the filmmakers would actually talk about this whole Italian subgenre, right? That seems to have excited their imagination.
0: Well, and again, it's kind of a short-lived period. You know, they were only making them for about ten years, uh, but there were so many of them that came out during that ten-year period. Um, did you ever see? There's a really, really good documentary, not all the colors of Giallo, which came out maybe one or two years ago from Severin. Um, right there's one that was packaged with Synapse's Blu-ray of Tenebrae called yellow fever, the rise and fall yes, of the Java. It's really, really I good. Yeah. I, yeah. Can, I, I highly recommend that for anybody who's interested in the genre, who, who maybe has never seen one and is trying to look for a way in. Um, cause that the for doc- me was kind of a starting point.
1: The documentary is worth the price of the disc alone. Um, I'm reminded several years ago, there's a Film Noir set that included this TCM documentary about Film Noir, and the same rules applied. You should buy it just for the documentary, and the movie winds up being the supplementary feature.
0: I bought Arrow's disc of Fulci's zombie flesh eaters, despite already owning the Blue Underground 4K restoration of zombie. Not the actual 4K disc, but the one that they restored a couple years ago. Um, because right. there's a documentary on it about the Italian zombie film that I really wanted to see.
1: So I, I bought the disc just for the documentary. And Zombie, the restoration you're talking about, yes. is coming out very soon on 4K Blu ray. Yes. And is. People are very excited for it. Perhaps that. the closest I've
0: come to wanting to upgrade to 4K specifically for that movie, but also, you know, Blue Underground is doing uh, uh, The New York Ripper. And yeah. House by the Cemetery, they're doing a lot of Fulci movies in 4K. And, of course, it makes me want to upgrade to a 4K setup, but it probably won't
1: happen. And it will happen. And here's another reason why it should. <laughs> and it will happen. Um, Late at night, don't you just hear the 4K? Patrick, <laughs> Patrick, there are things out in the world you cannot see. This will make you see them with new (laughs) eyes. But here's my point. Um, Should you upgrade, and you should, and you will, um, I have a boatload of 4K discs. Yeah. So it won't just be a meager few. I mean, I'm looking at them right now, but I've forgotten how to count. Um, I think I might have 40 of them at this point. Okay. And uh, I can actually steer you away there's a couple that there's no discernible difference.
0: Okay. Can you think but of there's any there's a couple offhand?
1: where uh the Sony 4K of Bram Stoker's Dracula I I can't tell the difference. Okay. I just I do not see a discernible difference. But the new 4K of Jaws, uh the 4K of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, um anything in the last 10 years that was that was filmed digitally, it's you can you can see a difference. Yeah.
0: I just can't justify, like, it's bad enough that I've upgraded some DVDs to Blu-ray to then upgrade Blu-ray to 4K, I just feel like. uh...
1: And admittedly, uh, one of our frequent listeners chided me in my first column about 3D, where I said something like, the accident happened, and I upgraded, and the person took me to task because it what was this accident? You won the lottery because I'm aware that upgrading will mean not only a new player, but a new TV. Right. I'm, I'm aware of that. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Our TV is, you know, 11 years old. So it's
1: going to well, go one of these days. So as I said recently about the Wi-Fi router, um, I actually looked that up on the Google machine last night. How long should a router last? And the answer was five years. Oh, wow. And I had had that uh, hinky one that kept screwing up for eight years. Yeah. I remember when someone told me how often you should replace your mattress. Oh, I don't even want to know. Oh, that's not going to (laughs) happen. That's crazy talk. (laughs) And... And get rid of Lumpy? How can I say <laughs> goodbye to Lumpy? Lumpy's like a member of the family now. Uh, i right, had some great times on Lumpy.
0: <laughs> Let's talk about Devil in a Blue Dress from 1995, which I thought was Carl Franklin's sophomore film. Um, yes. And I was wrong because... Uh, one False Move was not his first film. <laughs> so he actually made a movie in 1989 called Nowhere to Run
1: with okay. David Carradine and okay. Jason I thought you were. I thought you were talking about punk, which was his master's thesis. Right. Um, one thing I give Carl Franklin a lot of credit for he was an actor, most notably on the A Team television show, and he was unhappy with acting. So at 37 he applies to the American Film Institute and gets an MFA in directing. Yeah. Because he wants to direct. And my God, he made the right decision because I think I know what you think of One False Move. I know I know what I think of One False Move. One False Move is incredible.
0: Yeah. Yeah, we had just... uh, Adam and I had been writing this piece about summer of 1992, and that was actually the first summer release in 92 which is hard to believe it was a very different time uh and so yeah we both
1: went on that almost didn't get a release right that was going to go straight to video and then a certain gene siskel started to champion it but uh devil in a blue dress uh thank you for turning it on uh turning me on to it and thank you for picking me for the podcast because it had flown under my radar for 25 years wow yeah, I came close a bunch of times, think, but I had never seen it until Sunday night. Thinking that it was his second film,
0: I had this whole narrative in my head because the 90s were real big for you make a little indie, it kind of breaks out, and then you get a studio right. movie. So it's it's Kevin Smith making Mallrats, it's Ed Burns making She's the One, it's Robert Rodriguez making Desperado. Um And I thought for Carl Franklin, it was he made one false move and then he gets the studio movie, which
1: is Devil in a Blue Dress. Um, And that also intersects with the whole sophomore jinx thing. Right. Which except for um, Desperado, which is amazing, I would argue that a lot of filmmakers' second film is never as good as the first one.
0: Which, again, has to do with that whole you have your whole life to make your first movie and then you have a year to make your second, right? Um, But that
1: that makes One False Move his sophomore effort. Right. Which is incredible. Right. And Devil in a Blue Dress, I mean, I always thought the direction in One False Move was remarkably assured. Yeah. For one who had not directed many films. But if you compare One False Move to Devil in a Blue Dress... Devil in a Blue Dress is remarkably accomplished.
0: Well, it's interesting because just last week we talked about Training Day, which features the Academy Award winning Denzel Washington performance. And that's the moment where it's kind of his scent of a woman, where his performances start to turn and he maybe picks up some bad habits because he's rewarded for doing certain things in that movie. He starts to play a heavy a little bit more. Um, I kind of prefer my Denzel Washington in this mode, uh which is not so much every man i mean he he is an every man in this movie, but uh, I don't want to say good guy because I feel like that simplifies it a little bit too much because he does some things in this movie that
1: aren't particularly heroic uh true, but sometimes it's almost uh the character actor as hero. Because it's not showy or flashy, and he shares the screen with everyone else. Right. Um, it's a remarkable performance, though, and I one of the things I liked about it. And I don't want to stretch this metaphor. Carl um, Franklin was attracted to the project because he liked the the, the Bill Mosley book that it's based on. Yeah. And there are fourteen. Easy Rollins books. It's a series. Yeah. Uh, Devil in Blue Dress is the first one, but Mosley goes on to write 13 more. So because this is the first one, I started to see this as the Easy Rollins origin story. Mm-hmm. And that it's almost like a superhero movie when he shows up at the rich guy's house in a suit for the first time. Right. And he becomes a detective.
0: Right. Yeah. Um
1: this just is a, one of the many pleasures of this movie.
0: Well this is a movie that I've and I, I've only seen it probably twice before I rewatched it last night. Um and this is probably true of a lot of private detective movies because I feel like I wrote a piece years ago about, you know, movies that should have had sequels. And I feel like half of them were probably, you know, Zero Effect, which is a private eye movie. Remo Williams, which is a variation on a private eye movie. Ford Fairlane, which is a private eye movie. And Devil in a Blue Dress was on there because I feel like we were denied a series of Easy Rollins movies because I would just watch Denzel Washington play this character for the rest of his career if he wanted to.
1: And the last scene in the movie, besides sort of being a meditation on what's gone on before sort of hints at there being a series. Yeah. Because he's talking to Odell, and it's clear to anyone who's been paying attention during the movie, that he's talking about continuing his friendship with the character of Mouse. Right. And so you can very easily see how that transpires in the sequels. I figured the movie would be up your
0: alley, because I know what a film, oh. film noir fan you are. Oh, my God. uh,
1: The film is up my alley from the first shot. It's an amazing shot of a street in 1940. And it's a tribute to art direction because I actually know what street that is. It's Main Street in L.A. And I know that because very prominently in the background, we see the Regent Theater. Okay, yeah. And Main Street, that stretch of Main Street, was used in a lot of film noirs in the 40s. In fact, a couple of years ago, I'm watching TCM, and there's this very low-budget film noir, and I'm watching it, and I see the Regent Theater, and I texted my son, have you ever been to the Regent Theater? And he was sort of telling me about how it had closed, but they, they uh, poured some money into it, and they refurbished it. In fact, I found out, when devil in a blue dress was being made and they actually went to main street and dressed it to look like the 40s at that time the regent theater was showing porn wow so they actually convinced whoever was in charge of the regent <laughs> theater um to let them sort of doll it up and i think the film on the marquee is the betrayal but this is when money could buy you stuff because in that opening shot the shot goes back so far, and all those cars, and all those costumes, and all that sort of redress signage and neon and stuff—it's something to watch. You could just freeze the frame and look at it for for an hour. And it's not a particularly
0: expensive movie, right? I'm look uh, twenty seven no. million, okay, right? Which is you know still a lot of money, but for what they accomplish in terms of transforming nineteen ninety five or nineteen ninety four los angeles into 1948
1: los angeles is the, pretty the remarkable last shot the last shot of his neighborhood is the same way it's like yeah. how far back did they go yeah and it's really really well done and i gotta think there's no cgi no i
0: not in 1995 i don't think uh I could a be lot wrong.
1: of it is the houses they chose the street they chose and the costumes in the cars yeah also, in that last shot, um, I think Tak uh, Fujimoto. Fujimoto is doing something with filters or the light, because in that last shot, it looks very yellowish and sort of it, that it's starting to fade into memory or it's just that time of day that it's, it, has, it has a lighting on the whole street that's very evocative of yes. a certain feeling.
0: I had forgotten that Jonathan Demme, you know, I saw Tak Fujimoto's name as the DP. I'd forgotten that Jonathan Demme was an executive producer on the film.
1: That he was.
0: Yeah. Um, I like Easy Rollins immediately from his opening monologue where he talks about he just likes owning his house.
1: Yeah. He likes coming home to this thing that he owns. And that makes him different than a lot of the other characters in the film, right. and it's nice, it's nice that they point that out. Yeah. Although it's ironic, I don't know about you, you had seen it before, I had never seen it. From a very early point in this film, I'm sort of telling him, of course he can't hear me, but I'm sitting in my <laughs> chair telling him not to go home, because every time he goes home, <laughs> there's something bad there
0: it's usually tom sizemore which
1: yes but you don't ever want to go
0: home and find tom sizemore there ever
1: there's there's a whole bunch of other stuff too and it's like that's got to be from the book where the author is playing this ironic game that he's so proud of being a homeowner and yet owning a home means that people can find (laughs) it right yeah exactly
0: Um, This totally makes me want to read the other Walter Mosley books, though, because as I said, you know, we were denied a cinematic sequel where I want to see Denzel Washington keep playing this part. But there are book sequels that I could just as easily read and continue. Um,
1: It made me feel exactly the same way. I'm like, oh, my God, 13 more. Yeah. Especially if Mouse comes back. Yeah, you get to find out exactly what happened
0: to Mouse. (laughs) Uh, Let me ask you this question. Is the mystery in the movie all
1: that interesting? There are some critics who didn't think so, Ebert being one of them. But, again, this was my first watch. I was surprised for a mainstream Hollywood film how complicated the mystery actually is. Yeah, Yeah,
0: it's definitely inspired by something like Chinatown, you know, where it's very uh,
1: circuitous. Yeah, it was a little hard for me to follow, but having seen hundreds of other film noir's, what really helped me uh, keep keep an eye on the plot, sort of keep up with the plot, is film noirs incessantly tell us that institutions are no longer performing their central function. That institutions have broken down. And it's always the fault of individuals. So once you realize that one of the key conflicts of the film is between those two guys running for mayor... Mm-hmm. And how they're both awful, <laughs> only one of them is more awful than the other one. Right, that really helped me keep things straight. And speaking of awful, uh, Maury Chaykin, who I had just enjoyed in The Sweet Hereafter, and quickly figured out that he's one of the funny witnesses. And my cousin Vinny, Maury Chaykin plays uh, Matthew. What's his name? He's the, he's the candidate yeah, for mayor. Who's not Todd Carter. Matthew Terrier or something? Uh, Terrell. Matthew Terrell. And Maury Chaiken has one scene in the movie. Yeah. And it's enough. Because I'm not going to spoil it, but the minute we're inside that car, we can tell something's off. Yeah. And then the movie waits a half an hour to tell us what it is.
0: Well, and again, to your point, Denzel Washington or Easy Rollins willfully strands himself in the middle of nowhere just so that Maury Chaykin doesn't see where he lives.
1: Right. And then when when Denzel says, just drop me off here, right. there's a cut to where they are. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, no, you know, you might want to let this guy. But because <laughs> uh, it's just it's just so bleak. And um, Todd Carter is the other mayoral candidate. And I think he has two scenes in the film. Uh, But that's Terry Kinney, uh, local boy from Steppenwolf Theater. Yeah, I'm, Um, I'm of the mind that the mystery is not
0: super compelling, but I don't care because I'm invested in the characters. I'm invested in the world. I'm willing to just watch them go about their business and double cross one another and what it is that they're trying to figure out isn't as important to me as watching them
1: figure it out. That I thought owed a lot uh, to China Chinatown with John Houston's famous line, just get the girl. Right. And you could summarize the plot of this that way, but um, hold on for just one second that I can understand People who don 't find the central mystery as compelling as I do, but because I had never seen it before because i now i've now i've only seen it once about halfway through, and i won 't spoil it there is a twist of sorts that I was honestly surprised and delighted by um, we think one okay. thing okay, and we we find out that that the opposite is true, and i I thought that was that was well done. The twist that's...
0: You're talking about the twist that's sort of at the center of the whole thing. Who Albright is actually working for. Oh, okay. Got it. Yeah. Not the twist that I'm thinking of. I'm thinking of... Okay, I think I know. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. I'm thinking of the twist. To all of our listeners, you're welcome. (laughs) Because we... I think both of us are urging you to see this film and we don't want to spoil that delightful part of it yeah
0: which uh, well whatever um this is one of those twilight time discs that i think is now gone or out of print and i was fortunate enough to snatch up a couple years ago before it disappeared i'm very happy to have it as part of my collection but it is available you rented it on amazon right so it's out
1: there for people to see and it looked great but now this makes me want to check out the blu-ray just because I don't often use this word. Um, visually the film is sumptuous. Yeah. Yeah. It's it really, a great, it's a great um, looking movie. I read on the, uh, Google machine that a love scene between Denzel Washington's character and Jennifer Beale's character was filmed. It was steamy and it was cut I like Steam And that made me and that made me wonder where that would go. Yeah. I don't think it fits in the movie. No, I don't either. I, I thought, well, that was wise of them to do. Yeah. On a story standpoint, I thought when he goes to the Ambassador Hotel and finally meets her, maybe, and that later she's at his house and he goes to call someone on the phone. And she stops him, and it looks like she's getting flirty. But other than those two points, I couldn't even figure out where you would have that happen.
0: No, and I it's like odd. I like that we get the one sex scene in the movie with him and Coretta. Um, yeah, because it drives which is actually, which is actually very funny. It is funny, and it and it drives a lot of his character. First of all, it tells us right off the bat, you know, he's flawed. He's decent, but he's very flawed, um, which is important for the hero of a film noir. Uh, and and it, that guilt also, you know, drives him for the rest of the movie, particularly in that scene where he's in, he
1: and Mouse are sitting with Coretta's... That's um, exactly the scene uh, Ed Bouchard. Yeah. And Prey says something because he's grieving and Denzel Washington just looks a shame.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's
1: great. Um,
0: it, the movie did, you know, seeing Tom Sizemore show up did make me miss uh, that period in the 90s where like Tom Sizemore could be dependable
1: to show up and make a movie interesting. You knew that you he You look was... at the number of films that he's great in. And it's, it's very sad what wound up happening with, I guess it was substance abuse.
0: Yeah. You just um, always knew he was going to, he was, he always felt dangerous, even when he was playing a good guy in something like True Romance, where he's one of the cops. He always feels there's something uh, exciting about him being on screen
1: that you're like, oh, this is going to be interesting. Uh, and there's a scene in Devil in a Blue Dress. It's the scene on the pier where the character just reveals that he's depraved. Yeah, you're just I mean, you're happy that he comes to Denzel Washington's assistance. But even Denzel's character is like, holy shit. <laughs> this guy's the worst.
0: <laughs> um, and we have to talk about Mouse because we opened the show talking about Don Cheadle and this being kind of a holy shit, who is that guy performance uh, in 1995. But as you pointed out, he had been acting for many years. Before that, uh, I can't, there's something that I saw, you know, after I became aware of Don Cheadle, um, I saw him pop up in something, something from years before he had become famous, maybe moving violations. Mm-hmm. And I was like, holy shit, Don Cheadle in 1985, you know. Um,
1: if you're in a movie, Mouse is the part that you want. Oh, for sure. Um, can I engage in an annoying autobiographical plot? Please do. One year when I was in high school, the director uh, of all the plays decided to resurrect this sort of dusty thing from the 50s that was sort of quaint in its old-fashionedness. He did the play Time Out for Ginger. Okay. I Time know Out play. for Ginger is a play about a high school girl who wants to play football on the football team with the boys. Mm-hmm. It's very much, I'm surprised Disney didn't turn it into a movie it with Kurt Russell. Sounds like a Disney movie. And um, the director tried to get a lot of attention and publicity, if you can call it that in the high school, because this was the seventies by making everyone in the cast get uh era, era, era. appropriate haircuts. We all got real 50s haircuts. Okay. And the part that I was given was Ginger's father's boss. Two scenes, big laughs. That's the part you want. Right. You don't have to be at every rehearsal. The whole play is not sitting on your shoulders. You ring the doorbell. You come in through the door. You do your job. Thank you very much, ladies and gentlemen. Mic (laughs) drop. And yet you still get to be in the play. Mouse doesn't appear. Could it be 45 minutes? It's at least a half an hour.
0: Oh, for sure. Well, we see him in a flashback a little bit earlier, but he doesn't actually enter the story
1: until probably close to an hour. A lot of this movie goes by. And when he shows up, I tried to come up with some analogy And the only one I could come up with is, he's like Harpo Marx. (laughs) He shows up, and he's in an entirely different moral universe than every other character. One of the first things he does is shoot someone.
0: Right. That's the first thing he does. That's how
1: we're introduced to him, I believe. And because Cheadle is such a great actor, and knows that if you approach Mouse's lines, and speaking of Harpo Marx, Mouse doesn't have a lot of lines. If you approach them in a certain way, it's like painting a mustache on it. The way Cheadle reads his lines, he has no idea that his behavior is inappropriate. Right. He's, he's in a different world. Um, and that's what makes the character so interesting.
0: Because the movie never... Never punishes him for it never apologizes for it just forces us to accept this idea that he comes from a different like you said a different world and he exists in that world and if you're going to be if he's going to be around that's the way he's going to do things i mean you, you you made reference to the line at the opening of the show but just if you didn't want him dead why'd you leave him with me or i can't remember the exact line
1: And I also love the fact that at the very end, he's bold enough to ask for the money. Yeah, and gives the Denzel Washington character his half and says, "I knew that you would never ask for it." Right. So, in a in a way, uh, Cheeto's character is more plugged into reality than perhaps some of the more morally upright characters. Speaking of morally upright, yes. How did you like the film's portrayal of the LAPD? Oh, boy. I mean, there's there was
0: so many things in this movie that were unfortunately ringing so true to 2020, and you're talking about a movie that was made in 1995 that's portraying 1948, and still these things that they're
1: saying and these things that we're seeing happen. Uh, and were... L.A. Confidential covers the same territory. The LAPD was famous for that shit. Ugh. And one of the uh, detectives is Miller, and one of the detectives is Mason, and I don't know which is which, only they're both, both morally reprehensible, but one of them is worse. Right. <laughs> right. There's a scene after Denzel Washington meets um, Frank Green, and he's been cut, and the detectives turn up again, and one of them, the worst one, starts laughing and says, "Did I do that?" right I don't remember doing like, that. like like he's so comfortable with his own thuggishness that now that he knows Denzel Washington a little bit better, they can joke about it right, right. Ugh. and I found that I found that moment chilling, almost as chilling as the last shot of those two characters in the car, yeah driving around the neighborhood at the end what's that all about right
0: right because on the one hand it's like well they're just looking you know they're they're, they're watching for when easy messes up again or you know exactly to, but you get the impression that that's how they drive around and look at every black person in the neighborhood
1: which is interesting because certainly by the end of the movie. I would say that the easy character has made their job easier, right? And that easy, easy has solved the crime, <laughs> right? Exactly. Speaking of the crime, and this is how you know the movie's based on a book. Tell me what you think about the character with the wheelbarrow.
0: Yeah, it's super weird, I thought, right? I thought
1: that was one of the nuttier things I had ever seen in a Hollywood film.
0: And you kind of keep waiting for it to pay off in some way.
1: I thought the only payoff, if you can call it that, is at one point he does warn easy about something.
0: Right. A a lesser movie would have had him save the day at the end. He
1: would have been the the shovel slayer in Home Alone. Yeah. For for those of you who are still on the fence, you need to see this movie. (laughs) Because there's a character... In overalls, who pushes um, a wheelbarrow. And we don't know where he's from, but when people in the neighborhood aren't looking, (laughs) he cuts down their trees and shrubs and steals them.
0: Including Easy's, which happens off screen. (laughs) Easy is always chasing him away and throwing stuff at him. But at one point, Easy makes reference to, yeah, I lost two
1: trees. (laughs) And we see him replanting the trees because he's proud of his house it's just so weird and so specific and so funny
0: yeah and he's played by um an actor named barry shabaka henley who's a great actor who shows up in a lot of michael mann stuff he's got an amazing scene in collateral where he's a jazz musician that tom cruise goes to see do you remember that scene Mm, yeah i do uh and he's, he's the guy playing the character, you know, billed as woodcutter because he's constantly <laughs> taking people's trees.
1: I love it. Um, some Hollywood films have forgotten that you, you sometimes need to fill in the canvas with stuff like that. Right. And if anything, it makes the, it, it, it makes the film more realistic. Um, I got excited by a lot of the names in the opening credits and one of them was Elmer Bernstein. Yeah. Because I'm such a fan of his work. But not only is it is this at the end of Elmer Bernstein's career, but the film is so full of period music that I don't think Bernstein had to write much. Uh, by my count, it's about three pieces. It's used a lot when people are in cars going places. And it's very noir noir, but... Another reason to watch this film is that it's full of, um, for lack of a better word, jazz or rhythm and blues hits of the period. And whoever chose them did a really great job. The soundtrack's amazing. I would have
0: to uh, utilize that feature. Um, you know, Twilight Time has those oh. like isolated score tracks. Oh, bonus. Yeah. Yeah,
1: wow. So maybe in I'll essence... spin it that way. If that disc has that, you have the soundtrack, right? Exactly. Um, so, do why do the Twilight Time discs do the Twilight Time discs with the with the isolated music? That's not just the score. I if think there's it's a...
0: just the score. I don't think it would okay. use any of the like source music. I think it would just be the okay. Elmer Bernstein score.
1: So, why in
0: nineteen ninety five was this movie not a bigger hit?
1: I tried to figure that out, and to figure that out. I looked at movies that were very popular and successful in 1995, and that only made me scratch my head more because check it out. Uh, all of these came out in 1995. Get Shorty, Leaving Las Vegas, Clockers, Usual Suspects, Casino, Heat, and Seven. And I'm not saying any of those movies is like Devil in a Blue Dress but all of them are sort of dark crime movies. Right. So there's room for... It's not like Devil in a Blue Dress is an outlier in a, in a year full of superhero movies or uh, uh, English literary adapter or anything like that, even though this was the year of sense and sensibility. There's a lot of movies that came out in 1995 that are dark. But I'm wondering... Because I kept obsessing over Get Shorty, which is sort of the Quentin Tarantino version of a detective story. Okay. In a lot of ways, and that Get Shorty has the advantage of being more explicitly com- comic and right. ironic. Right. And Devil in a Blue Dress uh, plays it straight. Could it be that it got marginalized as well? That's the black detective movie. I
0: don't think that that's unfair. Um, I know, you know, in 1995, Denzel Washington wasn't the kind of guaranteed box office that he would eventually become. He was a movie star, but he was not necessarily a hit maker. Um, I think maybe the period kept some people away. I mean, are there a lot of outside of Chinatown? Are there a lot of like period noir
1: films that our big audience hits. I can't think of many think, LA confidential, I guess. I, I think that might be part of it. But the other thing I kept thinking about when I found out that this film was not a success was, um, something you once said about mystery men, which I think both of us are a fan of that. If devil in a blue dress had been released some other time, I don't know what that time would be it might've been more a success. Just like you once said, mystery men would have cleaned up if it had been made in the middle of Marvel frenzy.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, maybe it was just a little too early, you know, because I think it, I, I think I could be wrong. Training day is maybe the real turning point in terms of turning Denzel Washington into box office gold. Um, yeah. Cause he made movies that were hits in the nineties, but, he also made a lot of movies that were not hits. Um, but maybe if it had come out after, you know, training day, uh, and audiences were more willing to take a chance on a movie just
1: because it was a Denzel Washington vehicle that more people more would have people seen would have it. Gone. Yeah. The film did get a little attention. I think, uh, Cheadle won something from the LA critics association, just little awards like that. Um, It's a shame. And obviously I'm part of the problem because it took me 25 years to see it. Well, and it's a movie that certainly has fans because look at uh, probably
0: any list of like underrated movies of the 90s and it's going to be on there. So it's definitely a movie that people have tried to talk up in the years since, but it's a shame that it wasn't a bigger hit. Again, selfishly, because I would have liked more Easy Rollins
1: movies. It's incredible. And like I said before um to those of you who are on the fence uh rent it or stream it or buy it or or steal it and then as it's playing freeze the frame on that first shot of main street and just stare at it for an hour i'm so glad you liked it you've got we're all under quarantine you have time (laughs) maybe an hour and a half no it's it's incredible it's incredible that's awesome all right well thanks for the other oh go ahead go ahead The other thing I really like, real quick, under the bell, um, you can tell film noirs by the interesting character names. Um, This film really takes the cake. We have a character named Joppy. Yep. Dupree, Junior, Mouse, DeWitt, Albright. Easy, but his real name is Ezekiel. Um, All the names are just dripping with noir goodness.
0: Um... We didn't talk about Joppy at all, but Joppy's great.
1: Well, I really like two things about Joppy, that much like the other twists and turns, we have one opinion of Joppy that changes. Right. And I love the fact that when Denzel Washington gets mad at Joppy, um, what you do is you threaten to (laughs) Smash his bar. His marble. His very expensive marble bar (laughs) with a hammer. Um, I think everyone watching the movie thinks that Joppy's going to get hit with the hammer. No, no, no. Denzel Washington hangs out in that bar. He knows what would really hurt Joppy. And he's right. Joppy gets very mad. Yeah. Cause I think his uncle left him that bar or something. He, he gives the providence of it. Don't <laughs> mess with the bar. <laughs> the marble. Um, all right.
0: Well, thanks for talking about this movie. It was fun. And I hope that we uh, convince some people to check it out.
1: Yeah. You got to see devil in a blue dress. And, um, Uh, thanks for picking me for this podcast. Yes. Thank you guys for listening. As always, go to FThisMovie.com
0: every day for stuff like JB's new column. Uh, Follow us on Twitter at FThisMovie. We're on Facebook, YouTube, Instagram. You can email us at FThisMoviePodcast at gmail.com and listen to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you get your audio entertainment. Uh, We will be back next week with a podcast on... The new Charlize Theron Netflix movie directed by Gina Prince-Bythewood. I'm blanking on the name of it right now, but surely it will be a great episode. Uh, Next week, that movie, you know, that one. (laughs) It's called The Old Guard. The Old Guard will be next week's episode.
1: Go for it. Do
0: for it. Do for it. Thanks, everybody.